This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Clap, 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 clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's going on, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands podcast brought to you by Sports Radio 94 WIP and Odyssey Sports, of course. My name is Elliot Shore Parks, joined by the one, the only, the Sixers beat writer you need, Kyle Newbeck. Kyle, 2-0 and since the last time we talked, so maybe this can be a bit more of a positive pod. Maybe uh, we're the bad luck that are do, are doing a podcast is bringing the team down. I'm not sure whether to take yes. that as a uh, a sign from a higher power or what, but uh, <laughs> glad we don't have to talk about ugly losses now. Just ugly yes. wins. Well, it's funny, you know. Obviously, I was in I was at MetLife for the Giants game uh, yesterday, so I feel like all my good luck maybe is rubbing off on the Eagles. Hopefully, some can finally make its way to the Sixers. So a lot to get into today. Obviously, Joel Embiid has been absolutely crushing it. Uh, your boy, or at least a guy, you know, you wanted to trade, I should say, DeAnthony. Uh... Don't don't put words <laughs> in my mouth. There's a difference between I think someone is valuable and right. I think that they should trade them. That's well, like, his value. I'm not trying to move DeAnthony. Right. His value certainly has gone up since you made what I thought was a really good kind of observation on the possibility that they could trade him. So we're going to talk about Embiid today. DeAnthony Melton, a big deadline coming up, or I should say a date in NBA trades where more players are going to be available uh, than we're at the start of the season. So plenty to get into today. One thing I do want to explain off the top, we've had a few people uh, reach out about this. And first of all, thank you guys so much for everyone that's listened for the first few episodes. The feedback has has been awesome. Uh, and it's been really cool to be involved in this so far. So thank you to everyone that that's listened. One thing you might notice in the podcast feed, the way we're going to do these episodes is we'll probably go roughly an hour each time we do it. This team certainly always gives us a lot to talk about. And we're going to pull out two parts of the podcast that are really, you know, di- big topics. So let's say there's a trade rumor. We'll put put that out. We'll call that chapter one. We'll do one or two things. This way, I don't know how you consume co- uh, podcasts, Kyle, but I very rarely have a chance to sit down for an hour and listen to a pod straight right. through. So this is a chance for listeners. If you really want to hear about a specific topic, you'll hear that part of the pod. So just want to give everyone a heads up because I think sometimes it can look like it's three new pods. It's really one new pod with a few chapters. So basically, we'll save all of Kyle's good points for uh, for the chapters. <laughs> yeah, I actually, you know, I listened to way more podcasts when I had a long commute. And so mm-hmm. I find that shorter, more digestible, even parts of a podcast yeah. are what I can listen to more, at least within the daily flow of my life. So, you know, I hope that this helps people hear what they want to hear or get the stuff that they, they most want to hear out of the two of us. Yeah. And obviously, everyone should just clearly listen to all three podcasts, right? Just double listen to the two chapters, listen to the full one. Uh, we need all the downloads we can get. So just want to give people a heads up on that so they wear what 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 is in their feed. So as I mentioned, 
since the last time we recorded, couldn't record Saturday morning. That one's on me. Wasn't able to watch the Lakers game live. And this felt like a game. I got a, I was checking Twitter and I got a lot of texts. And then it's one from <laughs> Kyle basically saying, this will be the best chance you'll ever have to fire Doc Rivers after a win. So it was tempting to try to do it. Wasn't able to, but since then, and it kind of shows how important the timing of a podcast is. Since then, the topic has certainly changed. Kyle, Joel Embiid, he's been pretty great. Yeah, and actually, so to tie this to the Eagles somehow, I had somebody tell me yesterday that I might be the most level-headed Eagles writer slash observer or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, I said, part of that is because I cover the NBA most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a sense of like, all right, you have to be patient in a way that people don't want to be with football. Yeah. It's like, you know, one game just does not mean a whole lot in basketball. So there are times when I just view something as a throwaway game or we don't have to trade everybody and fire everybody. And so to your point, you know, we've been complaining about Joel Embiid for the first couple episodes of the podcast and leadership and you know how things are going with the team. And then Joel comes out and makes this huge statement two games in a row. You know, he took mm. it to Anthony Davis in that Friday game against the Lakers. And then Sunday, I don't even think he had it ratcheted up that high. Like the Hornets are really bad and we should certainly acknowledge that fact. But he just absolutely like effortlessly dominated them. Just made jumper after jumper, was throwing guys around, making all kinds of plays. And it's a reminder to me that, as much as we get negative during these terrible stretches, like that is their ceiling is how high can Joel Embiid go? Like he can be one of, if not the best guy on a given night in the NBA. And so if he can hit that regularly when the games matter, that's all that really matters. Like Elliot, you said yourself on one of the other podcasts we did that star play matters more than anything else. Like we can talk about coaching and role players and how Daryl Morey set up the roster and all that. Joel Embiid goes out and he doesn't have to score 50 plus points, but if he goes out and he plays with the, the competitiveness he shows against the Lakers with the offensive versatility that he had against Charlotte, that they're a really tough out no matter who they're playing. What do you think changed over the last two games? Is it, is it simply just effort? Because He's been absolutely unreal. I mean, you look at some of these stats. I wrote some of them down because I didn't want to, you know, get them wrong. But the last four games, 41 points per game, 10 and a half rebounds, 4.8 assists. Um, he now has the most games of at least 50 points, 10 rebounds, and 60% field goals since the merger. Jordan has six, Embiid has four, Malone three, and LeBron three. So outside of Carl Malone, some all-time great players uh, – in that list <laughs> <laughs> the carl malone shade wow yeah exactly outside of carl malone uh some certainly company you want to be a part of i don't think anyone wants to be in the carl malone company uh, uh no. right now but i mean just i would ask you you're around joel a lot you've been here i i believe since he was drafted or at least the majority of the time what's changed with him is it is it is it effort is it a part of his game you see he's, he's been better at how has he been able to be so dominant the last two games, but really the last 10, if you look at just, you know, constantly in the thirties and those type of things. Well, so there are definitely games where the effort or his compete level was higher on average. Like that Lakers game, he has taken exception to being compared to Anthony Davis in the past. And mm -hmm. part of that is because prior to this year, Anthony Davis was almost exclusively, well, not exclusively, almost always playing power forward 
when he's playing Joel Embiid's team. And Joel would still guard him. So it's a situation where Joel is defending Anthony Davis on a majority of possessions. And then AD is essentially like the DH. He's trying to go at Embiid, but then he's defending like Tobias or somebody Mm -hmm. else and not taking that one-on-one challenge. And I think Joel has always taken exception to that. So uh, the Lakers coach this year, Darwin Ham, he has convinced AD to play center more full-time. And I think Joel was like, this is my shot. I'm going at this guy's chest. He drew two fouls within the first four minutes of the game. Then AD took another stupid one and Joel just went on a total rampage. And, you know, it's natural. It's a long season, right? It's not, it's not quite football where every game matters. So these guys have to make up reasons to be like, all right, I got to ratchet it up tonight. This is one that's a natural competitive instinct. Like this guy is one of my peers toward the top of the league had been on a insane run over the last couple of weeks prior to that game and joel wanted to kick his ass and yeah that's the joel that you want to see all the time um outside of that i do think and i wrote about this this morning he is having an absolutely ridiculous mid-range shooting season and it's very similar to two years ago so the last year that he played with ben simmons he had like a dirk Nowitzki type mid-range season like better than Kobe has ever had from mid-range. There are no real numbers for Jordan that we can find because it didn't track this stuff back then, but comparable to like 96, 97 Jordan on yeah. mid-range jumpers. And he's obviously, he takes a lot of them. Like he works on that shot a lot. He, and that's his money spot from around the elbows, around like 16, 18 feet. And he has gone back to, after dipping last season, he's been, you know, if he's not the best mid-range shooter in the league, he's right up there. And it's just so hard to guard him. He's, he's seven feet tall. And if you switch him there, like last night, if Terry Rozier ends up on Joel on a quick switch, he can just shoot right over that guy. And he's an 85% free throw shooter. So any kind of shot from around the line is essentially automatic for him. And I think that's been a big deal. I want to keep talking about him, B, but you said something that's kind of bothered me all year with this team. And I and Joel, not specifically, but now that you mention it, I'm, I'm attaching him to it as well. So educate me on this. I was told for years that the mid-range jump shot is the least efficient shot in basketball. It was all about the three-point line. It was all about getting the free throw. I've always liked DeMar DeRozan. I know for years people ripped him because they were like, oh, all he does is shoot mid-range jumpers. It now seems like Joel is having a, you know, a great year shooting the mid range and Harden. I, you wrote an article about this last week. I don't have the stats in front of me, but it seems like he's shooting more mid range jumpers than he normally yes. does. I mean, what, what, like make it make sense. So on one hand, it's the most inefficient shot in basketball. On the other hand, the Sixers two best players are taking them all the time. What, what am, what am I missing here about why so this is maybe not good? The mid range, like if we're looking at this from a math perspective not that either of us are uh oh, trust me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. i was gonna um, try to get a stat there but i was like i'm just gonna say uh kyle wrote it yeah so the reason that the mid-range was not completely abandoned but has been sort of shunned by nba teams is that the average mid-range shooter is not making enough shots from that area to make the shot worth it so like if you're an average three-point shooter I think that's probably around 35, 35 and a half percent from three. Last I checked, Mm -hmm. you're averaging about 1.07 ish points per shot to hit that. 
as a mid-range shooter, you essentially have to make as many shots as Joel is making from mid-range right now, which is like low to mid-50s. So the difference in percentage you have to shoot on those shots for it to be to line up with the math of an average three-point shot is a lot. So Joel is good enough that you can justify that. And I think the the big thing with him is that for a lot of guys like DeRozan, for example, he's a great athlete and is like a good size for a guard slash wing, mm-hmm. but he's going up against a, a like-sized players. Whereas Joel shooting a mid-range in most cases has a significant amount of either height or length over most of these guys. So when he rises up, he's not rising up with like a hand right in his face. Okay. He's rising up and the guy's giving him airspace and he's getting a clean look off. And so I do think those are factors that you have to consider. There's also just like if he is comfortable with that shot and it's a way for him to get going and then that flows into other things. You never want to tell a guy like the problem with Maury and Houston or Maury and Harden's Rockets, I think, is they oftentimes pursued threes and layups in like a robotic way. And when those shots aren't falling, we saw uh, game seven against the Warriors in 2018. Mm -hmm. They missed, I think it was like 27 straight threes. There's a point you reach where you have to say, I have to get going some other way. And you step inside the line, you hit a pull-up shot. You you see a shot go down. You ask any guy who's ever played basketball at any level, pickup games, high school, college, whatever. Once they see a shot go down, it feels like the basket gets bigger and it starts rolling from there. And so I, I think you see that with Joel sometimes that he doesn't have it going from three this year. He shot poorly from there. And instead of saying, I'm just going to keep jacking threes, he's getting himself into a rhythm. And then teams are having to play up on him and he can get to the rim. He can get fouled and he can do all these other things that he's good at. It's just a way, it's not a shot that the vast majority of players should rely on. But if you're as good as Joel is at it, it it's got to be something that you use mm-hmm. pretty frequently. So your point about him being bigger is is a really good one. I hadn't thought about that. Obviously, he has a height advantage, so it's an easier shot to get. I also think probably mid-range in general is an easy shot to get because you're not relying on the ref to get the call. And then obviously a three-pointer, you're expected to shoot a lower percentage. My only concern would be, and you can speak to this, if he's shooting more than normal and he's shooting them at a way higher rate, is this sustainable? Because I believe his three-point percentage is down. He's not shooting as well from there. And again, I'm not a get-in-the-paint guy. I'm not. But is the best version of offense for this team, Joel, just mid-range jumping people to death? So that that would be my concern. But your point is right, that if it's going to get Joel going and it's going to get him back in an offensive flow, and clearly he he is. You know, we're we're having – I have the debate a lot with the Eagles on – you know, running versus passing and which touchdown matters more. Like I've always said, I think passing matters more than running and people go, however you score is how you score. So if Joel is going to get 53 points shooting mid-range jumpers, go for it. My my concern would be the sustainability of it long-term. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you too about Joel. Obviously Harden's back and they played two great games in a row. Are you seeing the offense start to come together a little bit? They've been over 130 points in two straight games. Um, They needed overtime one time to get there. But still, for an offense that has been ugly at points this year, it does seem maybe they're starting to to flow a little more. Yeah, and, you know, a little inflated with the overtime on Friday. but And and there are still moments where it's clunky. And, like, there was a possession against Charlotte on Sunday night where – 
Joel and James ran a pick and roll and they got a switch. And Joel, I don't remember who it might have been Kelly Oubre or somebody that is much smaller than him. That's yes, that's all. Most people, and yeah. he's in the block, <laughs> he's like waving his arm like this. He wants the ball. But James Harden has Mason Plumley on him on a mm-hmm. switch. And so he feels like, all right, this is my time to I'm gonna ISO on this guy and I'm gonna hit a either gonna try to go by him or he ended up hitting a sidestep three. And you could tell Joel was not super thrilled about it because he feels, you know, whenever I have a smaller guy on me, get me the ball. Like That's what I'm here for. That's why I get paid the big bucks, all that stuff. But I do think by and large, James has done a really good job of recognizing and certainly did Sunday night. When Joel has it going, he's the guy getting the ball. This is not the James Harden dribbles the ball and dribbles the shot clock out yeah. every possession. He's okay with, you know, I, I, as James Harden, run a pick and roll. I get to around the elbow or somewhere closer to the rim. I throw that pocket pass back to Joel at the free throw line. And then he's got the whole world in front of him. And to your point about the sustainability uh, of the offense, I think it's just about balance, right? Like if he was only taking mid-range shots and he completely abandoned the three-point line or is not attacking the rim, and he's not getting fouled, then, yeah, that's a really dangerous way to play for a seven-footer. I think the good thing is he still has one of the highest free throw rates in the league. He's getting to the line a ton. Like last night, end of the first half, he scored 15 straight points, and he had three consecutive N1s where he's just going right at the rim. He's yep. blowing through Mason Plumley, and then one he dunked while Kelly Oubre's fouling him. And so there are all the different elements that you want to see from him. And I think – That's the point I've always tried to make, and Joel has said this too, is that he's too skilled to put him in this box of, you know, just put him on the block and post him up for 90 possessions a game. Mm -hmm. Or he should just shoot jumpers because three-pointers are more valuable as a shot than, you know, the average shot anywhere else. They have to tap into everything. And by using him in that elbow area too, he has said over and over again, it becomes easier for him to see the floor and play make for his teammates, which really is the real key as we look at the playoffs. Cause you know, he can score 30 points, 40 points, 50 points, but if nobody else is involved or touching the ball, then the other teams will just freeze out his teammates. And in basketball, I always found, and, and guys will tell you this in the locker room too, when they're not getting touches and they're disconnected on offense, that translates to the other end. Like they're not as bought in on defense they just get sick of running down the floor and standing around and watching. And that's always been a concern with both these guys, sort of, Joel and James. They're guys that have been heliocentric offenses by themselves. And so making sure that Joel is being an active playmaker, that's also a big key. And that's why I think you've seen them set him up at the elbow as much as they have. So I want to say something positive about Joel, because I think sometimes, especially early on, and I'll be honest, I have a complicated opinion of Joel. Maybe it started from me saying I want to know Avon Leo over him. Maybe it's just a, a triggering <laughs> He's just a triggering. No one's ever going to let you get away with that, but that's I, like I, the, on your resume for the rest of your life. I, I kid you not, probably a year within dating my my now wife, she's not even a sports fan which is kind of nice sometimes. I mean, she likes sports, but I talk about all day. So she's not really one where I come home from an Eagles game and is like, why was it their down offense so bad? But about a year into dating, um, she, she texts me the tweet 
uh, the Von Lee tweet. She was like, this you with a question mark. And I was like, oh man, I'm just- Oh, she hit you with this you? That's- Yeah, cool. yeah. I was like, I'm just never, ever going to live this down. But but to the Joel thing, so I have two Sixers jerseys. I have an Iverson one. And a few years ago, ago I bought a Joel one because I said, this guy is going to be the best Sixers player of all time. Skill, accomplishments. I truly believed in him. So I want to make it clear. I know how good Joel is and I know how special he can be. But I also have to be honest that there's parts of me sometimes that feels what's the point of keeping him on this roster? They're not going to win. He's at his peak. The, the contract's only going to get worse. So I go through days of my life where I'm thinking they should trade him. And then he plays like he does the last two games. And you're reminded, this is why, this is why you keep Joel. But you bring the playoffs up. I just, I'll ask you this because it's how I feel. Whenever he plays great, part of me thinks, do it in the playoffs. I don't care if you do it right now. You know, what does it matter almost? We've seen him be great in the regular season. We've seen him do these things. So I'm torn because I don't want to diminish what he did because it is incredibly impressive. 53 points, no matter what position you play, is impressive, but especially as a big man to dominate, dominate the way he does. The fact that he can, and you said it, you know, he can decide, I'm going up against Anthony Davis. I'm just going to dominate tonight and do that. It just makes me think, why aren't you doing this all the time? Why are there games where it looks like you're disinterested? Why are there playoff games where early on I can just look at his face and tell that he's not into it? I remember the Miami game last year, and the face is a bad example to use because clearly his face was broken. But early on in game five against Miami, you could just tell. Like You can just look at him and see he is not as into it. And so I get torn when I see these great Joel games because I know he has it in him and I know he can be the, the best player to ever put a Sixers uniform on. But then I, I just, I, the playoff failures and seeing him come up small in the playoffs too much kind of ruins it for me. Well, and that I think has been the struggle for this entire fan base to start the year, right? Is everybody, when they win, it's like, well, this is what they're supposed to do. When they yeah. lose, it becomes, well, they're just going to lose in the second round again. And, you know, here yeah. we go again. Same old Sixers, Fire Doc Rivers, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot. It feels like Groundhog Day all over again. And I understand that. I, I get where the fan base is coming from. They don't these these performances are amazing. And I, along with you, Elliot, think that Joel has the talent. And I say this all the time when he scored fifty nine. The, the essay that I wrote on that was largely centered around the idea that like, this is why we demand so much of you. Like mm -hmm. I'm not expecting this guy to go out and put up a historic stat line every single night, but I do know that you can offer the competitive fire that you show in these yes. moments that you can control the game on both ends of the floor. You don't have to be a, a 60 point scorer in a game to totally dominate it. And we see that, when he is ready for a game, nobody can stop this guy. Like he'll miss a shot and he's ready to get that offensive rebound, put it back up, get fouled, whatever. Like you can tell when his antenna is up and he's ready to go. And like I've talked with him in private about this. Like I don't criticize him because I think he's a bad player. Like the, the worst thing that you would want a fan base to be is what they've been at times this year, which is apathetic, right? Mm -hmm. If they didn't care what Joel does on a night to night basis. That's worse than people being mad at him because they want more out of him. And I think that's an important distinction. People get mad at Joel, not because they think he's bad or he's overrated or he can't win or all that stuff. It's because they do believe in him 
and they know that sometimes his effort is bullshit or that he has more to offer like that. It's that simple. And so I think when he understands that, and he actually said after the Lakers win on Friday, and I'd wonder if he's a listener of our podcast or reading I would only assume, or anything, yes. but he, he said something to the effect of, you know, there are people who want me to be more than Joel Embiid, that they want me to set an example for my teammates. So my first quarter against the Lakers where he scored 20 points was about sending a message to my teammates to raise the level. And lo and behold, for most of that game, up until they almost threw it away in the final 35 seconds, yeah, his teammates followed him. They had a, a mostly pretty great game. And, you know, you see the flashes and why people – want to believe in this guy and his team and then i'm sure next week or later this week we'll get another uh stink bomb that somehow makes us well, infuriated again i was gonna say so let them let them lose to the kings on, on tuesday and we'll see at least the kings are good now though this is True. not like the True. uh the old the warriors where, yeah they're playing um, some good ones this week i had one more joel question for you maybe this is one you think about for the next pod because it's kind of a loaded one but when i hear you talk about how much Joel's emotion fuels his play. I'd be curious to know or answer it now if you want. What do you think he thinks of this season? Do you think he's happy? Do you think he's frustrated? Do, do you feel like he believes that mo as I don't want to put words in people's mouth, but a lot of people seem to think the window is closing on this team, if not already closed. I'm sure I yelled frustratingly on the last pod that it is closed. But what do you think Joel thinks right now? How would you think he's happy, frustrated, sad? Where would where would you put him? I honestly think he's probably almost a little too even keel. Like I, I think he is. And he said this last Friday, he thinks the vibe with the team has been good. Like the internal stuff has been good that even when they've had their struggles and their down nights and the injuries and all that, that they haven't dealt with like quote unquote and real adversity that yeah. they're still in a good place that nobody's pointing fingers and blaming anybody that, by and large, they're bought in and they're working towards something and he still thinks that they can get there. Now, whether that's just putting on a good act for the public is another story because to your point, we see the body language some nights and there are times when he's not all there or he, he lets go of the rope in the middle of the second or third quarter and other teams go on runs and it gets messy. But I do think that he believes in this group. I think mostly he believes in himself because mm -hmm. there are times he makes claims like he said recently that uh, if you double him at the elbow, that then like good luck. And then <laughs> right after that is when uh, he had those two awful turnovers yeah. against Houston and crunch time. And so, look, he's a he's not a perfect player, just like nobody else is a perfect player. But I think his self-belief is strong. I think he has put in just an, a ton of work over the years to fix some of his weaknesses and they've made adjustments. Uh, schematically in terms of where he's catching the ball normally and how he's playing that he thinks have made him the best possible version of himself. So I think he believes in this group. Now, does he think they need some changes? Possibly. I, I, he would look at their record and say, this hasn't been good enough. He would tell yeah. you that being a couple games over 500 is just not going to get it done. And once they get Tyrese back and we see the quote-unquote real version of this team, I think we'll we'll start to see what everybody's real opinions are of this group. So Joel now entering the MVP conversation. I was looking this morning. He's plus 1,200. He's still behind Tatum, who's the favorite. 
I think Tatum's going to be hard to catch barring injury. The Celtics are too good. Yeah. Their offense is too good. He's playing too good. Uh, Giannis ahead of him, Luca, Steph. So I think his quest for the MVP is probably going to come up small again, but he's at least in it, which is not something we could have said, uh, you know, even for the first pod, right? So he, he's obviously been playing a lot better. Um, I had a hardened question for you. We touched on it a little bit, but you look at what he's done the last few games, 28, 12, and four against the Lakers, 19, 16, and nine against the Hornets. So he's stuffing the stat sheet. The three-point shooting has been better. I think it's around 37%. The last two games, I think that because I wrote it down, I'm not going to act like I did that <laughs> off the top of my head. But how do you think he's looked? Because I, I think we were both frustrated with how he played against Houston. So I think he's been better against the Lakers and the Hornets, uh, taking the Joel thing out of it. But just how do you think he's looked? I did not love how he played against the Lakers. And I would actually attribute a lot of their late game struggles to how he played. Like he was making a lot of dumb decision making errors and. Like, look, I don't ever have a problem with if James Harden misses a ton of shots. I look, guys are gonna miss shots. You go cold, guys have bad stretches. That's whatever. I expect him to be a smarter player, and he is a smarter player than he showed toward the end of the game against LA. I do think to your point that you see the difference though with him in the lineup and the different guys that can get going as a result of that. We saw it a lot with Tyrese earlier in the year or at the end of last season after they acquired him, the mm -hmm. Tyrese is getting open three after open three after open three on the second side where it might not be James making a particularly great pass, but because him and Joel are sucking in so much attention in the middle of the floor with these pick and rolls and DHOs, mm -hmm. Tyrese or whoever ends up on that weak side is getting left completely alone in a lot of cases. And James, one of his best qualities is that he is almost always going to find that guy. Like if there is a guy for an open three, he will get the ball there. And so recently you've seen that with, I think the Anthony Melton has been pretty spectacular over the last couple of games. Yeah. And a lot of that is owed to Joel you? and James. I was going to say owed to you because saying you, you know, maybe they could trade him. Now all of a sudden he's just, <laughs> he's just popping off. He's a listener no. to the pod as well. The whole team just has clap your hands <laughs> on in the locker room. The Anthony's like, all right, Kyle, you want to trade me? We'll look at this. So I, I think you owe a lot of that to DeAnthony or to James and Joel and everything mm -hmm. they're doing in the middle of the floor. And also like certainly to DeAnthony, I think another big thing for him that you see, it's the same thing with Tyrese, is that when he doesn't have to be a primary-ish creator and he can just focus on, I'm going to hit spot up threes, I'm going to cut, I'm going to do things away from the play. That's when he's at his best on offense. You don't want to hand him tons of responsibility and so a situation where you're playing off of joel you're playing off of a high volume creator like james he can do all the things that he's put a lot of work into and be good or very good at and then he just looks like a perfect you know hand in glove fit as a a fifth starter type guy so i think those are the guys you really see benefit from james's presence and joel on top of all that because mm -hmm. james will get him the ball wherever he wants it at almost any given time. He's one of the only good entry passers that Joel has ever played with. Sadly, Seriously, you would yeah. think a team with a seven footer would be better at that. Um, and then the pick and roll with them is obviously one of the best in the league. It was statistically best in the league during the end of season stretch last year. I'm not really sure where it's at. I have to double check on that this year, but just based on the eye test, it looks like they have fallen right back into the rhythm they had at the end of last year. 
So should we talk about the Lakers game? What do you think? Do you want to get into that? Is that too too painful of a memory of the end of Lakers game? Now? You mean where they yeah, almost the had a historic letdown and lost the game? <laughs> yeah, we so could talk my, about it. My experience of the Lakers game was different. So I was at a wedding, and like I said, I was getting a bunch of texts about the game, frustrated and everything. Um, and then so we leave the wedding I, and go to a bar afterwards, and I look, and they're up like 15 points in overtime, and I'm. I'm like, why is everybody so mad? And then I get your text saying, if there's ever a chance to fire Doc after a win, this is it. So I went back, I watched it, you know, looked at the box score and everything. And yeah, that was pretty disgusting. And, you know, to <laughs> your point, one thing I did notice was a, a lack of, I mean, DeAnthony Melton had the ball a lot, it seems. He had a few turnovers. So I guess my question to you would be, and to everyone out there, like, why is that on Doc? And what, why is that a fire doc moment? Just because of the sloppiness, just because of the fact that it should never happen because it's historic. Like what, what's the, what did you see there in terms of main issues, I guess, uh, amongst many? Well, so one thing you could specifically blame on doc is I think there was a moment with 28 seconds left or 20 something seconds left where they're up like seven points. Yep. And he, for basically no reason, calls a timeout and you're mm -hmm. letting the Lakers get set and like they get to go in the huddle and get their act together just like you do yeah. rather than with with that sort of lead with that amount of time left they're probably not pressing you that hard and you could have just thrown the ball in if they want to foul you they foul you so that was it's almost like a butterfly effect from there right like they turn the ball over immediately after that and part of it is just people always are going to blame the coach when 100%. something like this happens right like this is just there are so many people. I, I think the problem and the reason it ultimately goes back to the coach for a lot of people and that I don't disagree with them on this. When it's a bunch of guys all making mistakes, it's like a, a team wide execution issue rather than, oh, this guy just had four brain cramps in the span of 30 seconds. It becomes harder to dismiss as it's a this guy problem versus, well, this is a team wide problem and there's no reason that a team that has, you know, James Harden, who's been through a million playoff series, has a ton of experience. Joel, despite the fact that he's had a lot of crunch time issues, plenty of experience at this point. I mean, point. Harden too, though, for what it's well, worth. Well, that's what I mean. So, like, <laughs> yeah, you have, I mean, you have a bunch not of guys. not guys you want closing a game no. is kind of what you're saying. You have a bunch of guys that, even if they have playoff and crunch time issues, it's a regular season game in December. You shouldn't be tripping all over yourselves. Yes. Tobias, another guy has played forever. DeAnthony is young, but he's played enough at this point that it's not like, oh my God, this is the first time I've been in a close game in the final two minutes in the NBA. So I, I think because of the talent they have, it just becomes like, well, this has to be on doc that they're not prepared for this. And it's also going back to just the reputation him and his teams have had historically, right? Like he's the only coach that has overseen all these three, one leads evaporating in playoff series. We saw what happened within that Atlanta series that they lost, that mm -hmm. they had a historic collapse in one of them. They fell all over themselves in crunch time in game seven. And so it just feels like, and to me, you have to think about, well, Maybe it's a Joel team thing at this yeah, point that's because it happened yeah. it happened pre-doc, but that was because Joel was only tangentially involved with uh a lot of it on, on Friday, I'd find it hard to be like, well, it was the Joel problem because it yeah. was just everybody screwing up at once. And at least Joel was awesome 
against the Lakers. Right, he I had a great that, game. So you're also not going to yeah. be like, well, it's his fault that they were. My thing with the playoffs is sometimes you'll see him come up small, but he hasn't really done much for the whole second half. Or he's, you know, it's not just those last three minutes. He, he'll disappear for long stretches of the fourth quarter in general. I mean, the Hawks game, I think the Hawks series, there was one where I don't think he scored in the final nine minutes or whatever. We obviously, I remember what he did against Miami. So he's here. I'm again, ripping Joel. I don't, I don't want to be the, the anti Joel guy, but it's, you're right. You know, when you talk about these crunch moments to me, I don't put the blame on doc. He's not out there on the court. I, you know, he's not telling them to throw it away. He's not telling them Matisse Thibel to have that dumb foul. I mean, he, he's not telling them to do those things. Thibel, well, by the he way, does I put, think, so I, I was going to say he does put Matisse in that situation though, in spite well, of he's the probably their that, best defender. If you know, but he I take also, that yeah. we he's laugh about this. We laugh about this on press row all the time. He is going to foul in a clutch situation like nine times out of ten. If you yeah. think about all the possessions he's been brought in on where he's like, we got to get a stop here. He has to have fouled guys on just an absolutely absurd number. I mean, look, look at the Hawks series. Is, is he not the luckiest guy in the world that Ben caught all the heat? Now, obviously, Ben deserves it more. But he, he, you know, he misses the dunk when Ben passes it to him. Not the end of the world, but whatever. He misses it. And then he fouls the shooter on the other end. So he consistently comes up small. And that's my thing with blaming Doc with these end-of-game situations. And I would fire Doc because why not? Although I do have a Doc point coming up on If there's anything he's good for, this would be it. But the bottom line is I think the Lakers thing, the end of game situations to me is on the players way more than Doc. The majority of these guys are not young. The majority of these guys have been in the NBA for a long time. That's the benefit of having a win now team. If you're going to have a win now team with veteran players, they should know what to do at the end of games. It shouldn't be on Doc to hold their hand through not blowing a nine point lead in the last 30 seconds. I, I mostly agree with you, but the counterpoint to that is, you know, if you're in those situations in the playoffs, in a lot of these coaching matchups, they will be at a disadvantage. Like they will 100%. have coaches who will throw more exotic things at them. Um, like we actually saw another thing goes back to coaching. The Lakers got back into the game in the first half after it looked like, you know, Joel had that crazy first quarter and it looks like they're about to go into cruise control with AD and foul trouble. And then the Lakers brought Davis back in and they just sat in zone and the Sixers sucked against zone defense for about four straight minutes before they brought Joel back in the game. And, you know, the solution can't always be, well, we have to have Joel bail us out of this, right? And that was a situation where Paul Reed was probably not fit to be the guy to play against zone defense. And maybe right. you say, I'm going to sub Paul out. And as bad as PJ Tucker has been, we'll just go small and we'll play five out and we're going to dare them to concede open threes to us. And you do something like that. And those are the things that Doc doesn't do that I think people get mad about. And like the, the sort of in-game, all right, this isn't working. We got to fix something quickly. He tends to stick with what he thinks is the right initial approach for too long. And I think that's what people really get stuck on. And so there are, there are probably better examples throughout the game than crunch time to say, you know, maybe this guy is not the leader that they need in order to make a contention run. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the playoff failures certainly speak to that, but, but, but to me, if Doc's going to be good for anything, because I agree, schematically, he's not going to blow people away. It clear, But the fact that James and Joel still struggle to play together, that falls on them as well. But it also falls on Doc, too, that, that they've not been a great duo together on the court. But if there's anything that Doc is going to be good for, 
it should be managing the locker room and having the cachet to make big time decisions. And I know that looking at this lineup, I'm not going to pretend to know the intricacies as much of basketball as much as you do. But I know if DeAnthony Melton is at, getting 33 points, making all these three pointers, super athletic, fast player, wing, all those things. Why in the world is he in over PJ Tucker in the starting lineup? You can say starting lineup doesn't matter, and I get that. But if there's any if there's any head coach that should be able to sit down across from PJ and say, you know what, it's better if you go to the bench. It's Doc. He's been around a long time. He's presumably respected around the league. He does have you know a good resume in a lot of ways. Is he going to do it? Because if he's not going to do that and he's not helping you schematically, again, not to turn this into the fire doc pod again, but this should be exactly where he helps you. He should help you in exact moments of having the cachet to tell a 37-year-old P.J. Tucker, who also has a certain amount of cachet and certainly a big contract, telling him, all right, we got to put the Anthony Melton in. I think the only – and I tend to agree that if not as a starter, that DeAnthony at some point is going to at minimum have to close for this group when they're fully healthy. Like mm -hmm. when Tyrese is back and you take a look at these three guard lineups, it's something I've been intrigued by for a while. The one thing that would hold me back is that I think DeAnthony brings a more dynamic presence off of the bench. Whereas like you bring PJ in as a, he's not going to be a sixth man in the way we think <laughs> yeah. of like Lou Williams or whatever. But right. if he is one of your top bench guys, he's not coming in and like, Oh man, he's like changing the the tone of the game or he's changing how teams are defending you. It's just like, okay, we're bringing in a solid veteran guy. Who's going to be a good defender, a good defensive option on some of these bigger wings. And so I wonder if you lose something there that bringing in, when when they're whole and when Tyrese is healthy and all that, that DeAnthony brings that activity and athleticism that you sort of hope that Matisse Thibel would bring, but he hasn't really been good enough to play mm -hmm. regular minutes so far this season. So that part I would understand if he doesn't pull the trigger on. If you're just talking about who on merit is playing the best overall this year and who is an actual, not a theoretical uh, two-way player right now, Melton's been one of your best guys all year. He's somebody that at his age and on the contract he's on, you're incentivized to further develop him, to try to get him more reps around the guys that are your true blue core guys. And so they need to play him a ton. And, you know, how they end up doing that, I don't know. So I'm interested to see when Tyrese is back exactly what happens with him. Because I, I think sort of sooner than later, they're going to have to acknowledge the fact that he's one of their best players and also somebody that they need to, if they're not going to move him, as we discussed that being a possibility last podcast, they really need to make sure that he's getting as many reps as possible alongside these guys that make up their quote unquote win now core. He can make an impact as a bench guy, but he probably is going to be on merit. The one of their best options to yeah. play in these crunch time possessions. And so you got to get him those reps sooner than later. So I think your point about PJ not being effective off the bench is a good one. PJ does not strike me as like a dynamic guy that's going to come in and give you a spark. He can't shoot. He's slow on offense. He basically has no offensive uh, value. And on defense, he's a good defender, but he also is not the super quick pesky guy type of thing. He's more going to just have the size to, to guard a lot of positions. But I, I also just disagree with the idea that it doesn't matter if Melton starts. And I'm not saying you're saying that. But if he's one of your best 
you know, I know three players right now. And then when Tyrese comes back, you could argue four or five, but definitely one of your five best players, then he should be there at the start of games. A, I think it'd be important and, and nice if he, if he could be a long-term part of this team. And he's going to be a long-term part of this team by starting, by playing with Joel a, a ton, by getting used to being with Tyrese. And when we talked on the last pod about how the windows for this team go back and forth. There's a window with Joel and Harden that's right now in theory. And then there's the Tyrese window. Well, if the Tyrese window includes Melton and you have two guards, and I know he's, I guess he's more of a forward, but whatever. If you have two perimeter players that can be three-point shooters, that can be young athletic guys, then I'm very interested in seeing what that looks like and seeing if you can get Joel to be incorporated in that. Because even though I think the Joel window is closing, he is still on a five-year deal. So it's not, you know, it's not like he actually only has two years left. And so I think starting Melton would make a ton of sense. A, if he's one of your best players, you start him off the jump and you, you know, hopefully get big leads and you don't fall behind. And there's minutes for PJ. So I don't, I get your point about PJ, but I don't know if Melton should be punished because of PJ's inefficiencies. Well, the other part too is that DeAnthony is long, but he's not especially big. And mm-hmm. I do wonder what the defense, like, even though he is a good defender in isolation. Is he a good defender within the group that would be James, Tyrese, DeAnthony, Tobias, Joel? Like, if that's your five, if you start and or close games with that group, how susceptible are you to teams that are wing heavy to just beating you up? Like, we're just bigger than you. Like Boston, for example. You're not really guarding tatum and brown with that group and even if you do like let's say tobias has a great job on one of them and DeAnthony or even james if they try to like post them up or whatever james isn't going to get bodied by those guys they will go right by him off the mm-hmm. dribble which is another right. story but then you have marcus smart who is just this big bruising guard who is going to take tyrese down to the block and just like put his ass through the basket and it, it's hard to Move and move the pieces around in a way that you don't have some sort of size disadvantage with the way the league has gone. There are just a lot more teams with just a collection of like six, 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 seven type guys. Um, not that post up wing offense is the most efficient in the world, but you do mm-hmm. leave yourself susceptible to certain styles hurting you. Like Milwaukee, too. Milwaukee plays. Brooke Lopez and Giannis and Chris Middleton is a pretty big guard. And Drew Holiday is a pretty big guard. And so there are some things that might happen there if you get too small. Now, again, I trust the Anthony that he plays bigger than his size. He's got a great wingspan. He can get in there and, you know, guys are trying to post him up or whatever. And he can deflect, deflect the ball away. He's disruptive as an off ball guy. He's a good team defender. But there are consequences, I think, defensively, depending on the matchup that you're looking at. So it's not a thing where I think you can just put them in the lineup and set it and forget it. And that's just it. Like there are going to be teams you need PJ for. Like PJ, for all his warts and his struggle shooting, you're going to need him when you're playing like the Giannis's of the world and guys like that. Like he has been in those battles before. He knows mm-hmm. all the, the tips and tricks. And when you can play more physical defense in the playoffs, I tend to think he will be more valuable than he is right now. So, you know, there's a balance to it. I do think the Anthony has made his case for playing bigger minutes alongside their core, but you, you also can't lose PJ or lose sight of what PJ brings to the table in the games that actually matter. 
One thing I was thinking about, speaking of minutes, uh, earlier this week is we're so used to this team being the clear-cut like top three team in the East over the last few years that I think we become obsessed with minutes management and maybe also because the best player is a center with bad feet. Unfortunately, that's something you always have to think about. But considering where they're at, now they're six and a half back of the one seed, still plenty of time, obviously. We all know, again, the analogy is it's basically like the OTAs of the Eagles right now. We're not even in training camp, really. So I, I'm, I'm well aware that there's plenty of time. But do you think they have to handle it a little differently this year? Because in past years, they've gotten out to good starts, right? They have been you know, in that conversation in the top. And so you felt really confident about where you were at. I mean, we, we discussed the importance of this homestand. Do you think they have to not be worried as much about minutes now and just focus more on getting wins? Or do you think they still have to, to quote a former general manager, use the longest uh, view in the room? It has to be a mix of both. Like this is not a team. I, I think the one thing that really puts them behind the the teams that they're competing with or think that they're competing with is that most of them have significant advantages in terms of experience together on them, right? Like the Bucks mm -hmm. have gone on a title run and have years of other playoff battles that they've been through together. The Celtics obviously went to the finals last year and have been in a, a ton of playoff series together. Now yeah. they made important additions with Malcolm Brogdon and some of these other guys, but the core guys have been there for a while. They, they know what to expect. They know that they can change and do different things when it's necessary. This Sixers group has little to no experience together, really. Like Joel and James and Tyrese and Tobias got some reps last year, but Joel's hurt for some of them. The year before, Joel and Tyrese and Tobias played together, but Tyrese was more of a bit player. He had some big moments in that run when they lost to Atlanta, but ultimately yeah. it was like you didn't know if he was even going to play. He was just a role night player tonight. at that point. He wasn't yeah, like guy. yeah. He it could be Shake Milton a given night. It could have been him. Like he was just he was not a core piece of that group yet, and shouldn't have been expected to be. He's a rookie at that point, right? So. The core of this team now, as you add, you know, you add PJ and you add DeAnthony, and there's just a lot of guys that have not been in, and you saw that in this Lakers game. They have not been in a lot of these situations together. And that's not something that you can fake. It's not something you can practice. Like you can, you know, as well as I do playing sports, you can practice end game scenarios or mm -hmm. like in soccer, guys practice penalty kicks and things like that at the end of practices. Until you are in that moment, so Harry Kane against France. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Until you're in that moment, and there's thousands of people screaming at you, or in a home game, people start going quiet because they're shocked at what's happening. Yeah, you can't prepare for that feeling, and that's something that you don't know how anybody's going to react until they're in that moment. So, to build those collective reps, they really need this whole season to you know figure out what their schemes are, figure out how much zone they can play, how much small ball they can play. This lineup works. This lineup doesn't work. This Paul Reed is going to be the backup center, but maybe not in these matchups. And maybe you need Montrez Harrell. And so there are just all these moving parts that you do have to figure all of that out while also probably overextending your stars because you have to win these games. You cannot afford – you don't want to be in a situation where you're like a four seed – and you're playing Boston, who is yep. kicking everybody's ass in round two with Boston having home court advantage. It's still not great to be the three seed, frankly, 
if you're playing Milwaukee and they have home court advantage in round two, it's they have put themselves in a bit of a hole. And so they just, they have a lot of work to do between. Well, the other part of this too, is to me, they haven't earned the right. I I understand the Joel health thing. Like I, you have to take that into consideration. I get it, but this team, you know, I think it was on the first part pod. You mentioned how this team hasn't really um, for lack of a better word, they sometimes can act entitled or almost like they're, they're bigger. They're bigger than they are, that they are some champion or they are some team. That's a perennial contender. I don't think they've earned the right to worry about minutes down the road. They have to get this right now. They have to figure out how to play together. And I also think by minutes managing, and again, besides the Joel health thing, but I think minutes managing sends a message of, don't worry, we'll figure this out. We got time. You don't have to play tonight, blah, 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 blah. And I know you have to handle certain stars like that in all of sports, not just NBA and in, in, in all sports. But I just don't think this team has earned the right to say, well, don't worry, you don't play tonight because you know we, we're going to have to worry about you in, in, in April or May or whatever. I think this team needs a little bit of a fire lit under them of, no, you're playing tonight because we need to get better because these reps need to get better. And I feel like I sound like an old man while I'm saying this, but <laughs> it is kind of how I feel. It is, and it's not even about stars shouldn't be treated whatever. It's about this collection of players is not good enough to just worry about the playoffs. I think it sends the wrong message when you only – when you, when you focus on what's going to be happening at the end of the season, it's almost like, well, don't worry. You'll definitely be there, and you'll be in a good seed. But to your point, they could wake up and, and be, God forbid, facing Boston in the first round or the second round or, or be in an unadvantageous situation. So that would be my concern with this whole minutes restruct, minutes you know management early on. I'd be worried about the message, I guess, it sends, it sends to guys. Well, and speaking of the entitlement thing, I don't remember if I brought this up on the podcast, but I, I wrote about this the other day. Uh, the only two teams that I can remember in recent memory that fired coaches midseason and were successful were the Miami Heat in 06, and that was Pat Riley taking over for Stan Van Gundy. Right. So it's one of the best coaches ever <laughs> taking over a team that had Shaq and young Dwayne Wade. Right. right? And it, like the prime, other prime, prime Dwayne Wade, too. The, like, the other that. one was 2015 16. Ty Lue takes over the Cavs with still Apex LeBron and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. And on top of that, that team had already gone to an NBA Finals the year before. That They mm-hmm. were sputtering a little bit after that 2015 Finals run where they, they were hurt in that series anyway. They fire David Blatt and promote Ty Lue. They end up winning the championship and having the big comeback, the 3-1 comeback over Golden State. And those are the only two real examples of mid-season coaching changes in recent memory that were like, all right, that team went and went out and won a championship. Most of the time, you fire a coach, you're not going anywhere. And those, yep. those, so those groups, those two teams had really accomplished and or elite, like physically elite in the case that Dwayne Wade was not like Dwayne Wade yet. We didn't really know that he was going to be that good, but he was like peak physical specimen Dwayne Wade and also could be like the the young Kobe to prime Shaq. Right. And this team is and not it, filled with young physical specimens to say the no, least. I mean, Max, is, but he's undersized. Right. So this is a team that can't say, oh, listen, if we just fire the coaching and a new coach in here, we have the track record of success that like Shaquille O'Neal had mm-hmm. in 2006 or that LeBron had coming off of the, the run that he had in Miami. This is just, they need, that's why I am, I go back and forth on the doc stuff because I feel like at times it almost sends the wrong message to these guys. If you fire him, like, yeah, 
he's responsible for this. And, yeah, you know, that's bringing a good point. in a new guy is gonna fix everything, and then they just do the same shit that they've done for forever, and they end up in the same place that they've lost in the playoffs for years and years. So yeah. it's not to say that you can't move on from the coach and have success or find a better guy or whatever it is. It's that I wonder how that ultimate, like what the cascading effects are from there. So the last thing I want, and I think that's a really good point actually about firing doc is another example of telling these guys, don't worry. It's not you. Don't worry. It's not you, Joel, like not you, James. And so I, I think there, there's a lot of truth to that. The last thing I wanted to get into before we have to wrap up is um, we got a five-star review that I want to read the question from and then piggyback that question into something else. So this five-star review, again, if you leave a five-star review with a question, we will at, we'll make sure to talk about it on the pod. And we're in the early days. So if you leave one, you got a really good chance of uh, having this bad boy read on the pod. Um, this comes from msmith39. Uh, I'll shrink it a little and add my own commentary at the end, but he basically asked, why isn't Maury on the hot seat? Uh, he's the one to put this old and slow team together. Um, and my question to piggyback off that. So, so answer that, but, but also the December 15th thing, there's going to be more players that are available. This will be their first chance to tweak the roster. The first chance to maybe, this is probably when you see more of a thigh bowl type move than anything major, but a, so I'll ask you, do you think Maury is on the hot seat? Do you think it changes how he views this season in terms of making moves? And just the December 15th thing, what, what do you think is realistic there? Uh, I don't think Maury is on the hot seat. I think part of that is that it's a unique situation where the coach was hired before the executive. And you know, that's always, it makes for kind of a fascinating dynamic in the, uh, the yeah. power structure when that well, happens. Howie hires all the coaches with the Eagles. So you don't, you know, don't worry about right. it. He, so, we'll never see a coach there. Yeah. <laughs> so especially when it's a guy, it's not like they hired some young up and comer. This is a guy that as he has let people know when he's upset with the media <laughs> that he's one of the, was named one yes. of the 15 best coaches ever. And he's got a championship and he's won at all the places he's been now, he's also coached some of like the all time greats at every single place that he's coached, but that's yes, a different story. One title. Yeah. Um, so then you also consider Daryl came into a situation where they had really screwed up the roster to a degree and he had to do some mess cleaning. Mm-hmm. And I think that certainly bought him some time. It, it definitely bought him time initially with the fan base and it bought him time with, you know, the, the people in the, the, at the ownership yeah. And other people within the organization because you go from they looked really stuck when they had Horford and they had lost Jimmy Butler and what do we do from here and then Maury turns around and makes trade a, a couple of trades and drafts Tyrese Maxey and all of a sudden you're the one seed in the East and everything looks super promising and I think that honestly if you're asking one main reason he isn't on the hot seat. Drafting Tyrese Maxey might be like top it's of the it. list. Right? That's like, it. That yeah. plucking him in that spot and getting a guy who is that good, that's the sort of thing that if their stars were more consistent, if if the other moves had all come together, that's how you sustain and extend uh, contention windows. That's how you make a team go from you might win one title to – you might have a chance to win two and three and four. And that's that's how like the genius of Michael Jordan in the 90s is that he left right when things were starting to get a little stale. He came back. Chicago flips over their roster with new guys and it's new blood and mm-hmm. things get flowing again. And so 
Tyrese is that, but through a draft pick, he's a guy that he brought a different dynamic to this team. And if James Harden sort of fizzles out here, if he's nearing the end of his uh, physical prime, that he's not going to be as effective as he is or was at his peak, then Tyrese can step in and take some of those reps and he can be that guy to be the bridge and, and, you know, assume some of those responsibilities. So that, if anything, I think that's probably the number one reason that you wouldn't worry if you're Maury right now. I've heard nothing to suggest it's even like a, <coughs> a thought in anyone's mind that he could be in danger. But, but look, we've talked about the uh, the roster. And I think he, I said to you last podcast, I think he would admit to you that the signings they made have not been good enough. Like PJ right. has not been as good as he needs to be. Daniel House Jr. not been as good as he needs Harrell. to be. Harrell has been, you know, he played, he was okay. He was pretty good in the Charlotte game, but he hasn't played a lot of nights. And, you know, they have to figure out what the plan is on a night-to-night basis behind Joel. So now now Melton is a big success. And if they hold on to him long-term, whatever, that that to me is a big success. And, and maybe that's a, a smaller version of the Tyrese thing where right. that move is so good. Like they traded Danny Green, who is not going to play basically this whole year, and a pick – who ended up being David Roddy that he's been pretty good in Memphis, but you have a guy who's legit good right now and is young enough and on a cheap enough contract, you can continue building the roster around him and the rest of these guys and he'll continue to develop. So there are enough good moves that I think either it offsets the bad ones or at least gives you reason to say that we should be patient. We as the Sixers organization should Mm -hmm. be patient and see what he has uh, cooking when we head toward the trade deadline. It, it It's amazing how much luck goes into drafting and how much it changes perception. Because you said the thing about how when he got here, they were way, were off, way worse off with Horford, and, and they had lo- lost Butler, you said, right? By the time he got here, Jimmy was gone. So they were probably worse off, but I don't know, man. Like, they have P.J. Tucker now, and I know Horford was making more money for sure, but – Horford was better then than than Tucker is now, in my opinion. Now here specifically, he was not very good, but I think he was a better player then. But even with the Eagles too, you look at the Jalen Hurts pick in the second round. I mean, he Howie drafts Hurts, and now they're a Super Bowl champion. If he doesn't do that, I think we're viewing Howie very differently. If Maury doesn't draft Maxi, I think we're looking at this roster way different. Just because Maxi does represent some hope for the future. And bottom line, I think most fans either want to feel you can win a title this year or have hope for the future. I don't think many fans think the Sixers can win it, but I think Maxi gives them some hope for the future. December 15th, what do you think? I need, I need like, a, 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 is a move going to come? I have some names here I could throw by you. We could do a quick yes or no thing, but what, what do you view as realistic on who they could even trade? Um, I mean, so again, I don't think anything is probably happening until January or maybe like right up until the deadline if something's happening mm-hmm. i do think they want to get tyrese back and sort of see how things come together now they're they have been on the phone talking to teams for a long time up until this december 15th date right like actually i don't i've written about this but if people had not read what i wrote about it um daryl and elton brand in the basically like the month leading up to december 15th essentially will split their time between teams. So each of them is responsible as far as my understanding goes for reaching out to different executives with different teams and sort of Mm -hmm. dividing and conquering in that way. So they have these exploratory talks with 
I'm just, I'm, this is not me reporting. This is who they're talking to, but this is as an, yeah, example. an example. So if we're talking about just the Atlantic division, it'd be like Daryl will talk to somebody with the Celtics and the Knicks. Elton might talk to the Nets and the Raptors. And so they just go through and down the middle, the two of them will have discussions like, Hey, what are you guys thinking about doing? Who do you think might be available between now and February? What are you looking mm-hmm. to get? Those sort of things. And they go on this fact-finding mission. And then it December 15th is rarely like a trade's made this day. But it's when those preliminary discussions start to get a lot more serious. Okay. Now, if I'm trying to predict what they're looking for, I think they want to get more athletic. They obviously want to have as much shooting on the floor as possible. So if you can combine those two ideas, you get three and D guys, which I think was a big part of what they wanted to do last summer. That's sort of the ideal scenario for them. The problem is those guys are very valuable around yeah, the they league. Yeah, they need to trade a value. And right? the contracts that they're on typically, like I, three and D guys don't make a ton of money, broadly speaking. Um, but you also don't have many movable contracts, right? Like mm-hmm. the movable... Movable contracts are PJ, who doesn't have much value right now. Right. Matisse doesn't have a ton of value. Like maybe some team wants it to take a flyer a on him, but you're not. Yeah, he doesn't make a ton of money. DeAnthony, who we've obviously discussed, he's been one of their most productive players, somebody you want to keep for the future. And then you get past that. Like those are just like the non quote unquote core guys. Mm hmm. Maxi obviously has the most value. You want to hold on to him at all costs. Tobias is the contract that brings you back the most. But as we discussed last podcast, he's been one of their most reliable players and is also like, I don't know what sort of team wants him. So I I think you're going to have to keep expectations low unless like it almost has to go one direction or another, right? Like if they go on a, a great run and it's like, man, we just need like one more guy then that's like they have more incentive to to really push their chips in. If it goes the other way and it really goes off the rails or they continue sputtering, then you're almost incentivized like, well, we got to blow this up. Not blow mm-hmm. it up, but we're willing to trade Tobias and maybe take a loss on that for role players or whatever it is. So I, I think if they stay in this weird stagnation, it almost will like stagnation will feed more stagnation so yeah fans should be hoping for them to go in one direction or another i think well and look we talked about it at the beginning of last pod this homestand is going to be huge so they have the kings coming up the warriors already two and oh on the homestand so a good start um we're gonna try to get another episode in i think we had said maybe thursday but don't hold us to that we're definitely gonna get you another one before <laughs> the weekend for, for sure we'll see we'll see what where things go but before we wrap up, I guess I'll throw it to you. Any anything else? Or are you just uh, excited to see how they do in these next two games, and um, you know, get ready for what's hopefully a good homestand? No, I mean I'm just really excited for the Steph Curry show on Friday. Yes. Hopefully, yes. he's one of the the best in person experiences in the NBA. And I'm honestly excited to see this Kings team. They've been the Aaron Fox, know, they're not yeah. it's not quite like the Warriors. There won't be as much juice as there is for no. the Friday night national TV game, but. Uh, and for a basketball junkie, it'll be fun to see a, a Kings team that's been much better this year too. All right. Well, my dog is all up on me right now trying to get me to take him out. <laughs> and I know it's actually, I saw it's your dog's birthday. So happy it birthday. It is. Louis just turned two years old today. Two years, man. My dog's four. I feel like uh, 
I don't have a kid, so I can't speak to it, but it is uh, like, I remember we got him when I'm a puppy, when he was a puppy, I'm like, holy shit, this little dude's four now, but he also stole a slice of pizza off the table yesterday. So I guess maybe he's still in his terrible two uh, phase, but yes, <laughs> happy birthday to your dog. And uh, maybe they'll give him a, a win for the birthday on, on, um, on Tuesday when they play. So thanks again to everybody that listened in, especially if you're still listening now, we really, really appreciate it. Like I said, the beginning first few pods really appreciate the feedback and if you leave a five-star review we will make sure to answer the question uh hopefully we can get one every episode to get something uh something new to talk about download the pod from the all, all your podcast app odyssey app all those good things kyle another fun episode clap your hands and uh i will talk to you later in the week see you next time buddy